Hi, and welcome to the Stefan Levera podcast focused on Bitcoin and Austrian economics. Today, we are carrying on with the Hardware Wallet interview series. But first, let me introduce the sponsors of the podcast. Check out Kraken, one of the world's leading Bitcoin exchanges. I'm really impressed with the way they operate. They are known for having a really strong focus on security with Kraken Security Labs. They also act ethically in the space, supporting organizations such as Coin Center. They're one of the longest standing Bitcoin exchanges and they're consistently rated the best. They've got a high quality platform offering the best liquidity in the industry. They've got high trading volume and low fees with no minimum or hidden fees. Kraken have 24-7 support and on the institutional and business solution side, they are providing the best in class accounting, reconciliation and reporting services for cryptocurrency hedge funds, asset managers and fund administrators. Kraken have an OTC desk for those higher touch large block trades. They offer five fiat currencies and also offer margin and futures trading. To learn more and sign up, go to the Kraken link in the show notes. Next up, Unchained Capital. These guys are doing Bitcoin financial services and they've got two main products. One is the Vault and the other is the Bitcoin collateralized loan. So the Vault is a two of three keys multi-signature Vault. So you can use Trezor or Ledger. It's really easy to set up. It's all guided through a web interface and you can distribute your keys. And on the Bitcoin collateralized loan side, you can get USD liquidity without selling Bitcoins, meaning you don't trigger a capital gains event. So while that loan is outstanding, it's stored in a dedicated multi-signature address under what's called collaborative custody. So if you want to learn more about that, go to the Unchained Capital link in the show notes. So with that said, we are carrying on with the Hardware Wallet interview series today with Charles Guillaume, Chief Security Officer of Ledger, and he's also leading the Ledger Donjon team, which is a hardware security and ethical hacking team. So he has a very impressive background working in hardware security, so there's a lot we can learn from this interview. We talk about what goes into hardware wallet security, what are the crucial components that must be done well. We talk about example hardware wallet attacks and how these are done and how they can be protected against. And also, just in case you're having trouble following along because it's technical material, just a reminder that I've also got episode transcripts on my website, stefanlevera.com, on each episode page. So you can feel free to read along while you listen or even use the transcript as a resource for later on. Here's the interview. Charles, welcome to the show. Hi, Stefan. Thanks for having me. Uh, I'm very happy to be part of the show. Uh, I heard the first few episodes about hardware wallets. That was very interesting, many contrasted uh, opinions. And I'm going to try to share my views on this uh, topic that I know uh, quite well now. Yeah, I'm sure uh, you do have a lot to share. So let's get a little bit of background on you and how did you get into this world? Yeah, sure. Uh, about me, um, well, first of all, sorry for my, for my strong accent. Uh, I'm French. <laughs> <laughs> uh, during my education in France, I studied pure mathematics, computer science, and cryptography. This is uh, basically my technical background. Um, I've been working in the security and hardware security specifically uh, industry from the beginning of my career, uh, a bit more than 10 years ago. Um, at first, I worked in a small company in France, which is called uh, Tempo. This company uh, designed secure element. I started there as an intern, and uh, during my internship, I broke the security of one of their secrets uh, using side channel attacks. So they decided to uh, keep me uh, for a few years, and <laughs> I was in charge of the security of, uh, of secrets. After that, I joined, uh, joined the French ITSF, 
and ITSF is an Information Technology Security Evaluation Facility. Basically, this is a third-party security evaluation lab, which is officially accredited by uh, the ANSSI in France. ANSSI is the French security uh, certification body. And to give an example with secure elements, um, the circuits are designed for uh, critical applications, such as banking and passports. But before putting those uh, smart cards on the market, the vendors have to go through an evaluation and certification process. It lasts several months, and at the end of the evaluation, when all the vulnerabilities uh, which have been found by the ITSF have been fixed or solved and solved, um, the certification authority emits a security certificate, and this certificate grants the vendor uh, to sell the secure element uh, for critical application. Uh, what, what makes a, 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 secure, a secure element this is the security certification, basically. I worked there for around four years, and I was uh, leading the lab. And I joined Ledger uh, almost two years ago as a CSO. Uh, basically, I'm responsible for uh, security of Ledger's product. And as you can uh, Im imagine, this is a huge mission. <laughs> uh, I created the dungeon. The dungeon is our internal security uh, evaluation lab. Uh, we are eight security experts coming from the security industry. And day-to-day, um, -day we try to break our products because uh, I think this is the only way to uh, improve the security uh, of our products. And when we found vulnerabilities or possible enhancements, we work tightly with um, the design team to uh, improve our product. Our field of expertise are, expertise are uh, quite wide. We have uh, experts in hardware security, software security, and uh, and cryptography. Fantastic. And as I understand, Donjon Ledger doesn't just hack Ledger products. It actually hacks other, even other hardware wallets as well. And, and there's a bit of a process around working with that other hardware wallet vendor around working with them on if they need to patch that vulnerability. Uh, yes, you're correct. During uh, the past uh, years, we basically we spent uh, most of our time studying our products. This is the this is uh, maybe ninety five percent of our time, uh, but we also uh, spend some time to evaluate the security of our vendors' product because we use uh, HSM, for instance. We use secure elements, we use different circuits. So we also evaluate the desk product because as we construct a security product from not from scratch, but with um, uh, basic blocks, we have to evaluate them. This is also part of our, our time. And also we, we spend some time to uh, look at the, the security of the, the, the hardware wallet on the ecosystem, but not only a hardware wallet, basically a security product. Fascinating. And so can you give us a little bit of a background then? What are some of the basics of Bitcoin hardware wallet security? What does good look like? <laughs> um, well, basically, a uh, hardware wallet is a physical device to store uh, your cryptocurrency uh, uh, keys and uh, to perform transaction uh, security. Um, the basic, basic threat model for a hardware wallet uh, can be simplified into uh, three main security features. Um, the first one for me is the capability to generate high quality randomness. 
this is very important, at least for generating your seed. Uh, if ever the wallet has a bad quality random, uh, it can have terrible consequences. It, 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 this is very simple, but it is uh, uh, very, very important. Uh, the second main security features uh, for me is probably the, hub, the, the ability to prove genuineness of the device from the hardware point of view and also from the firmware point of view. Uh, the hardware wallet must have a secure mechanism for this and uh, this is at the utmost uh, importance. The, the wallet should ensure secure display and secure inputs. Uh, for verifying and granting transaction. And these properties can only be granted if um, the, wa the wallet has a genuineness and integrity uh, mechanism. Otherwise, you, you will be vulnerable to supply chain attacks, uh, evil mail attacks. And um, if basically, if an attacker controls the code running of you, uh, on your other wallet, he basically controls your coin. So this is also a major um, uh, security feature. And the third main security features is also uh, very basic. This is the confidentiality of your keys and the seed. The key uh, are generated and stored uh, in the device and they must uh, remain protected uh, against remote attacks, but also against physical attacks. Uh, that means that the hardware wallet must protect your keys, even if your computer is compromised or even if the attacker just stole uh, your device. For me, the, the threat model of a hardware wallet is very simple, but not very easy to ensure. Thanks for the breakdown there. So if, maybe if we were to break some of those three components down, what does it take to, as you said, generate high quality entropy and randomness? Hardware wallets are made with, uh, with IC, with integrated circuit, and inside the circuit, uh, they are often, they, there is often uh, TRNG, which stands for a True Random Number Generator. Uh, and this is, a, this is a specific part of electronics. Um, there are different kinds of design. Often, this is the three oscill oscillators, and which runs in parallel, and they are sampled at a very specific timing. And this a very tiny uh, source of entropy is uh, amplified uh, with uh, different uh, different means, but this is often the kind of the design, the kind of design, and you, you can find this kind of circuit in uh, secure element, but also in uh, general purpose uh, uh, MCU. In the um, in the case of secure element, there is a security evaluation which uh, verifies the uh, the good quality of the randomness and. Also, there is a mathematical proof which is um, uh, required for a security certification of the randomness. How about now the second part where you were talking about proving the genuineness of the device? So as you're saying, there's supply chain attacks. Someone may have tampered with your device before it got to you or the evil maid attack where let's say you're staying in a hotel and the maid takes your device and tampers with it or does something with it. How would you, what, how can a device be protected against that? You, you can imagine the several uh, kind of mechanism, but basically what, what we would want is um, a device which prevents an attacker to uh, read the memory and write the memory. And if, if you have this basic property, you can put a key, uh, in, a secret key inside uh, the, the circuit and you will request the circuit to prove that uh, it, it actually holds 
uh, this key. And if the circuit cannot be tampered uh, with uh, and uh, rewritten, uh, the, the, the genuineness can, can be um, achieved uh, using uh, this kind of mechanism. Excellent. And then I think the uh, this is probably one that everyone wants to know is how how is it how difficult is it and what does it take to keep the confidentiality of your seed and your keys? Um, so in this case, it, it really depends on your uh, threat model, uh, what you consider, what you consider, and what you don't consider. But uh, in my threat model, I consider remote attacks and um, uh, physical attacks. Uh, for remote attacks, you have to take care of all your inputs and to be sure they are properly um, uh, taken into account. There is no buffer overflow, no stack overflow, no, um, um, how to say, all, all the, all, you have to take care of all the software attacks, basically. Um, and if you uh, also consider the physical attacks uh, threat model, you have to consider uh, the, the, the harder attacks like side channel attacks, uh, fault attacks, and, and, and basic uh, harder attacks, basically. Also, this is another common point for discussion within hardware wallets world is open source versus closed source models on software and also the hardware. Can you tell us a little bit about how, how do you think about that? <laughs> Discussion is very interesting and I think this is a, quite fundamental. Um, first of all, I'd like to say that I love the open source approach. Uh, I've been working in the security industry for more than 10 years and the usual approach in this industry is to keep everything secret, um, uh, especially in the hardware security industry. Uh, the main reason why uh, they keep everything secret is they want to keep their technology uh, advantage. Uh, one of the things which motivated me to join uh, Ledger is the openness of the platform. Uh, yes, you, you, we all would like to have all the code to be open source, but already the NanoS and the NanoX um, now are the only platform uh, running on a secure element where you can load your own native code. Uh, from the hardware security in, in, uh, industry perspective, it's already a huge gap. <laughs> Creating the dungeon, uh, we also decided to open source our, uh, our uh, attack tools, uh, which is also clearly disruptive uh, from the hardware security perspective. But my mission is about security, so let's discuss this question from a security perspective. What we wait from a hardware wallet is clearly security. Um, first, open source allows auditability of your device, but it does not uh, guarantee that relevant people will uh, audit uh, your, your device. Uh, in the case of the Nano, uh, the circuit and the devices have been evaluated by us, by, but also by several uh, relevant security evaluation lab. Uh, second, if you decide to make your own open source hardware wallet, you'll have no choice but using a general purpose MCU. And from my experience, I can say something. Uh, the data from uh, a general purpose MCU can be extracted very easily. So it removes two main security features uh, in the threat model the possibility to verify the genuineness of the device and also the confidentiality of uh, your secret key against an attacker with a physical access. Um, finally, I'd like to go a bit more into the details of open source hardware wallets, what is actually open source and what is not. Because we, we, all, we often think that everything is uh, open source on uh, open source hardware wallet and it's not clearly the case. So if we look 
um, a hardware wallet uh, schematically. Uh, let's consider it's uh, it's uh, a chip with its with its firmware. Uh, we have uh, several layers. The lowest level will be the chip design. Uh, then we'll have the chip implementation and manufacturing. And if we go to the software part, we'll have the low level software uh, software which is designed by the IC vendor. There is often a bootloader, some uh, boot primitives, drivers, uh, this kind of code. And if we stop here, the three layers are closed source, closed source and kept secret by the, the IC vendors. This is the case for the element, but this is also the case for uh, general purpose MCU. In the case of the IC vendors, uh, in, the, in the case of the element, this part are uh, designed for security and audited. Uh, but in the case of general purpose MCU, uh, they, they are not audited by anyone, basically. If we go a bit higher in the layers, we get the data sheet of the IC. Uh, here is the main difference. The secure element the data sheet is accessible only under NDA, uh, maybe because uh, it explains all the proprietary uh, countermeasure of the IC, how to, how to configure them, and so on. And in the case of general purpose MCU, they are public, and but there are no countermeasure, uh, basically, in the general purpose MCU. Then we arrive to the actual firmware. Open source hardware wallets have mostly a monolithic open source firmware, and only one can uh, audit it. But the, uh, on the other side, uh, the firmwares of the NanoS and the NanoX uh, are divided in two parts. You have the operating system uh, in one side, which is closed source, because it uses the proprietary countermeasure of the IC. Um, but the, this firmware is constantly audited by the dungeon, and it has also been uh, audited and certified uh, by a third-party uh, laboratory. On the other side, uh, the application running on top of this operating system, like Bitcoin application, Ethereum, uh, our pass password manager, or SSH uh, application, are open source. So sorry for the long explanation. I just wanted to outline that, in fact, an open-source hardware wallet, uh, there is a small part of the critical layers which are actually open-source. Um, also, also, our goal is to open-source the most part of our operating system. So probably in the next months, we'll open-source most of our uh, operating system, uh, keeping closed-source only the low-level part of the OS, which uh, use the proprietary part of the, of the circuit. So I think people defending open source in this particular case are a bit uh, religious. Um, finally, I we would like um, what we would like is an open source security element. And it will solve all the question, but this is a complete other story. Right. So if I were to summarize that, then there are essentially there are different layers of this stack, if you will. So you've got the firmware, you mentioned the data sheet and the IC, which is at a low level. And as I understand you, then there are certain components of that IC that are under NDA, non-disclosure agreement with the creator of that product. And the reason being there are certain proprietary countermeasures that they have put in place with that IC. And then the reason, if you go back up that stack to the OS, the operating system level, there are certain components of that OS that are closed source because they interact back down with that uh, 
proprietary countermeasure part within the IC. Would that be a correct summary then? This is exactly exactly why uh, our operating system is closed source. For this on, only reason, the, the NDA only concerns uh, their very uh, proper, proprietary countermeasure, which are implemented into the, the secure element. Got it. Okay. I'd be really interested to just talk a little bit about some of the pitfalls and some of the past problems and ways that Bitcoin hardware wallets have been hacked. Could you give us just an overview on what are some of the ways that people try to find vulnerabilities? So as you mentioned, there's side channel attacks, there might be a problem with the cryptography, it might be insufficient entropy or randomness. Can you outline some of those for us? Uh, this is the, the, the main uh, way to attack a um, uh, hardware wallet, basically. Uh, and wh- when I joined Ledger, I've been explained that uh, I-, I didn't know very well the, this uh, ecosystem. And I've been explained that some competitors used uh, general purpose MCU for uh, storing their seed. And for me, that was a, I was coming for, from the secure element industry. And for me, that was a complete uh, nonsense. Uh, I was clearly aware that this kind of MCU were clearly uh, vulnerable for uh, to many uh, different attacks. Uh, then I created the dungeon, uh, dungeon our, our security evaluation lab, and during our creation we built some tools and we impl- implemented the attack the test bench and so on. And um, we spent most of our time to evaluate our product, but we also uh, spent some time to uh, uh, evaluate others. So we had a look to the other uh, wallets in the market, uh, mostly by scientific interest uh, first. Uh, but when we found all those vulnerabilities, we felt uh, responsible to help uh, the uh, other vendors. Got it. It might be good to break down some of those ideas. I think one of them, and it comes to this asymmetry, the, the idea of the cost to attack versus the cost of defense. And as I understand, you, you have to try to make it so that the cost to defend is cheaper than the cost to attack. How does that play into what you do with Ledger and the devices? Yeah, the the attack and defense is a cat and mouse game, basically. Uh, The thing is that if you don't invest uh, in the defense, the attacker wins at the end at some point. And this is is precisely why uh, we, I mean uh, the Bitcoin community, uh, have to continue to uh, invest our time and resources to uh, improve the security in the ecosystem. And I'm pretty confident that we'll enable to uh, prevent all those acts. But again, uh, the, 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 the cost of the defense is, uh, is, is not null. We, we have to uh, spend more, a lot of time and a lot of um, money to uh, improve the, the bar for security uh, in this industry. And the cost of the attack, uh, it, it really depends what, what you are attacking. Uh, if, if the... If the stakes are high, the, the, the attacker will spend a lot of money to, uh, to break systems and they will succeed. Uh, basically, this is a, um, if you win more money uh, breaking a system that it costs you to uh, break it, uh, attackers will do it. Right. Yeah. So uh, let's try and break down some of the typical ways that you might analyze these. So as you mentioned, there's side channel attacks. So as I understand, there are different types of those side channels that you may look at. So there's, as I understand, there's power, looking at the variation or the emanation in that power. There's EM radiation, visual, acoustic. Can you help explain what are some of those and how, how does it work? Uh, side channel attacks. So 
uh, we, we love this kind of attacks in, in, in the dungeon. And we, we have a, a side channel attack test bench. And we, the idea of side channel attacks is to monitor a physical uh, measurement of the circuit during its, uh, when it runs some code. Uh, you can monitor the power consumption. You can monitor the electromagnetic uh, emanation. You can monitor the sound. You can monitor a lot of things. Uh, what is the most um, efficient is often electromagnetic emanation or power consumption. So what you, what you will do as an attacker is you will use the, the hardware wallet, for instance, uh, and during its computation, you will record uh, the power, power consumption. You will get a lot of traces and you will try to find a correlation between this set of traces and the data which is uh, handled if uh, inside the, the hardware wallet. And if there is such a correlation, there are plenty of techniques um, which allows the, the attacker to um, retrieve this data. And if this data is a secret key, then uh, you will succeed to mount an attack. Uh, we we uh, spent some time on the, um, on the Twizzle one, uh, implementation of uh, pin verification. And um, uh, what we uh, prove is, as an attacker, uh, if I steal your device, I will try a few pin values and record the power consumption of the device during the pin comparison. And only a few power consumption traces um, uh, are enough to guess the correct value of the pin. And then, um, thus, uh, I, I will be able to access to, to your uh, funds. Uh, we, we did a responsible disclosure uh, on this one with uh, with Twizzle and uh, they patched it uh, after a few months. And I think the, the new implementation is is clearly harder to uh, to break uh, regarding uh, side channel attacks. Yeah. And so in that example with the pin, as I understand, there are different countermeasures that a manufacturer may put into place. So one example is I've heard of uh, exponential decay, right? So every time you try the pin and you fail, it makes it even longer before you can try it again. What are your thoughts on that versus, let's say, having just a hard limit? This is the maximum number of times you may try to brute force the pin. Otherwise, it bricks the device. Yeah, for instance, in the case of, uh, of Twizzle, we have uh, 15 tries, uh, I think, or 16, 15 or 16. And this is already a lot uh, from, uh, from a side channel perspective because you can uh, record the 15 traces and then try uh, with those traces, uh, compute the correlation, try to retrieve the correct value of the pin, and then uh, use it uh, on your 16 trial. So uh, 15 is already a lot, but uh, there, there are other countermeasures. The DID is to um, ensure that the power consumption of the device does not depend only on the on the correct value of the pin, but on other random uh, things. For instance, this is a this is one kind of countermeasure that you you can put in place. And in secure element, there are built-in uh, countermeasure against side channel attacks, uh, which um, uh, put a lot of noise uh, on the power consumption. This kind of or um, timing desynchronization. This kind of countermeasure. So I understand there's this concept of profiling, right? So you might, for example, let's say you know a certain device is a commonly used hardware wallet and you may buy a copy of that hardware wallet. It's openly available, right? And you may then use that to try to understand from that oscillogram, okay, what, what value is it uh, computing at the time that it's you know this level? And is that then you're using that profile to then 
when you're doing the if you're trying to do an attack obviously you're then comparing it back against the profile that you created earlier is that roughly how one way you do it oh you're, you're completely correct and in in this very case this is exactly uh, what we did we we have a tweezer one uh, for which we, we will um, uh, try a lot of different pin and we'll record a lot of traces and we will do uh, a profiling as you as you just explained exactly as in um, computer vision uh, we will train uh, an ai uh, to recognize uh, not uh, dogs uh, from a cat on a picture, but uh, digit equals one or equal nine on the power traces. But this is basically exactly the same thing. We will train uh, a machine le learning algorithm to recognize your digits on the um, power consumption. So we do that on the device A, for which we know uh, the correct value of the pin. And on the device uh, that we will uh, steal from uh, the victim, uh, we will just record a few traces and we will ask to our machine learning algorithm, what's the correct value of the pin? And the machine learning algorithm will uh, uh, answer us the most likely value uh, for these traces, for this one, for this one. And when you combine the, 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 the traces, uh, you are able to guess the correct value of the pin. On, on this very example, we were able to um, uh, to guess the correct value of the pin uh, within four traces. So you, you do uh, four wrong uh, value of the pin and the fifth uh, is, is the correct one. Right, yeah, that's really fascinating. Uh, and another concept I saw just from doing some reading is this concept of DPA. Is it differential power... Analysis is it? Is that uh, so? What's what's a DPA? What is a DPA attack? <laughs> oh, you you studied the topic. <laughs> yeah, D DPA attack is is the first one which has been discovered uh, discovered maybe in nineteen ninety eight, and in this case, um, this is non profiled cyanide attacks. That means that you don't do the first step, uh, which consists in um, understanding how the device uh, is running. But to, to, to summarize, this is a statistical um, uh, process uh, which allows an attacker um, to distinguish what would be the value of uh, a specific bit of the key. I see, yeah. Uh, and f from a cryptographic point of view, is there anything there that changes in terms of which cryptocurrency is being hacked, or is it more ultimately about trying to get at what is the underlying seed within that device? This is just a good question because um, on hardware wallet, there, there is the very uh, moment when you uh, you are computing uh, either your public key or uh, you're computing a transaction. And at this very moment, you will use your secret key. And if you are able to measure the power consumption of the device at this very moment, uh, it can give you a lot of information about the key. And this algorithm uh, will depend on the cryptocurrency. Uh, for instance, if you're using Monero, uh, your uh, scalar multiplication will be implemented uh, using uh, ED255.19. Uh, um, if you're using uh, Bitcoin, uh, you, you will use a SecP256 uh, curves. And in both cases, that won't be the same algorithm. And the, so the, there are some caveats in the implementation which will change the um, uh, the properties of the power consumption and th th that will ease uh, the attacker uh, to uh, to extract the key. But in the threat model of hardware wallet, um, this is the the, the, the attacker uh, needs to have the value of the pin uh, to to make a transaction. So 
this is quite unlikely that an attacker would be able to monitor the power consumption of your device when you are able to uh, make a transaction. But we also uh, studied um, the, the scalar multiplication of Twizzle and uh, we proved that it was possible to uh, retrieve uh, the secret value of um, your Bitcoin key when it computes uh, the public key from uh, your, your private key. But this is not that important because uh, uh, if the attacker is able to monitor this power consumption, that means that he has already your pin, uh, your, your pin value. So um, that was more for a scientific interest than uh, real attacks. Okay, I see. Um, another concept that I've heard of, and this may, I don't know, let me know if this is not a relevant kind of attack or way that can be done, but there is this concept of fuzz testing. And so as I understand, when you do fuzz testing, you're trying to let's say you've got a certain field and you start inputting data that it's not meant to go into that field to see if you can get a different response out of the computer. Is there any sort of similar parallel here with hardware wallets and fuzz testing? Yeah, definitely. Because uh, on hardware wallet, there are uh, interfaces, I mean, software interfaces. Uh, you, when you want to make a transaction, you will have to input your transaction to, to the device and uh, for USB and so on. There are, there are some interfaces, not that much because uh, this is... Uh, uh, made for this uh, hardware, few interfaces for security. But as soon as there are interfaces, uh, you have to uh, ensure that the inputs are correctly uh, used and there is no buffer overflow and so on. And this kind of properties uh, can be uh, checked using st static analysis. This is a, a good point. It can be checked also by auditing the code. Uh, but it can be difficult to uh, to figure out all in all the code if there is no buffer overflow, for instance. So, in to be more efficient and more uh, uh, more to have more confidence, there is no uh, buffer overflow. Uh, we implement fuzzing, and fuzzing what you do is is quite naive. Uh, you will uh, use uh, your computer to input a lot of different uh, inputs, random inputs. Um, you will guide uh, the fuzzer in order that the random is uh, a bit guided, that you, you won't test the same thing uh, uh, a lot of times. Uh, so you will guide uh, the, the random uh, in order to, to be more efficient. And the, the fuzzer will try to, uh, to monitor um, an um, uh, behavior which are not uh, um, planned by the by the designer. So as soon as you have a crash, uh, it might um, it might uh, uh, it might be because uh, there is a buffer overflow, but a small bug which can turn into a vulnerability. Because a vulnerability basically this is a bug uh, which uh, can be exploited to uh, to do something to do an attack. And the, the fuzzing process will help you to find a bug just randomly. <laughs> right, I see, yeah. Uh, and uh, I guess in terms of these attacks on ledger devices, uh, were ledger devices sort of hardened against these kinds of attacks? Or what, what's the thought there? So what we, what we do uh, during the, the design process, um, uh, we try to, to, to do the most uh, static analysis possible. Uh, the dungeon is auditing the code uh, day to day. We we find some vulnerabilities, some enhancements, some lot of things that you can improve the security. And also, uh, we um, we have an emulator in order to uh, to make fuzzing more efficiently. And we also do uh, fuzzing. 
And also, we do hardware attacks to, uh, to be sure that uh, our implementation is uh, secure against an attacker with a physical access to your device. Got it. And from a code auditing point of view, are you looking there at things like making sure that, let's say, some cryptographic standard has been correctly implemented and that there hasn't been a mistake made in the random number generation? Is that, is that the sort of thing that you're looking for when you're doing code audit? Yeah, this is part of the audit, yes. And this is the most important part of the audit. Uh, auditing the crypto library, uh, being sure that uh, if you uh, it's not uh, vulnerable to invalid curve attack, uh, invalid point attack, uh, the, that the randomness is correctly used, there is no bias, and all, all this kind of vulnerability uh, which, uh, which can be found in, in crypto library. Fascinating. Okay. Um, can you talk us through a little bit around what does a responsible disclosure process look like? So you found the problem. Now you take that either to, if it's internal, you take that to your internal team or out to another hardware wallet team. And as I understand, there's obviously some interesting ethical questions around this because obviously you have to, there's a question of how quickly uh, is the other party going to respond and try to patch that vulnerability because in that time when it's not patched all the users are vulnerable right <laughs> um, as i mentioned before uh, we come from an industry where vulnerabilities stay secret for all players um, at ledger and in the bitcoin industry uh, there is this uh, transparency trans transparency uh, policy um, but it does not mean we we have to directly become uh, black hat or, or hassat. Uh, I mean, in the dungeon, we are a security researcher and we are more interested by the science uh, aspect of the thing uh, rather, rather than the fame or the money. So in my perspective, this industry uh, suffers a lot uh, from the fear of the security breaches. So acting ethically is the least we can do. So for the vulnerability we found, we uh, reported uh, them uh, directly to the vendor and asked them if they were okay that we disclose them publicly at some point. Uh, in most uh, of the cases, we agreed with them on the time frame and so on. In a few case, uh, cases, the vendor did not, did not want us to disclose and we decided not to disclose uh, uh, simply. And um, for instance, if we, uh, if we are talking about um, the the worst, I would say, vulnerability we found of, on Twizzle, which is uh, the seed extraction technique. Um, basically, what we were uh, able is to, if you have uh, access, uh, physical access to uh, Twizzle 1 or Twizzle T or KeepKey uh, device, uh, we figure out an, an attack uh, which allows uh, an attacker to extract the seed value from um, the, the circuit. The thing is, uh, this vulnerability cannot be patched. There is no way to fix it. Uh, and that, that means that uh, any firmware upgrade won't allow um, to, to patch the vulnerability. So what we decided to do is to disclose it to the vendor in order to, to um, they, they figure out uh, something to, uh, to mitigate the vulnerability. Uh, but as the vulnerability is not fixable, uh, we decided to uh, to not publish how we do. Um, so in this case, the I think this is the most responsible way to uh, disclose this vulnerability. Uh, in this case, users are aware of the attack, so they can choose a way uh, to mitigate it. But real attackers on the field uh, won't be able to um, um, to uh, to use it uh, for for bad things. I would say. 
So it avoids exploitation while it uh, makes the users aware of the vulnerability. But yes, responsible disclosure are very, uh, very important. Uh, we, we want to make sure that the user of, of the ecosystem uh, stays safe. Got it. Uh, I'm also curious, as you came from the more of the secure element world. And as I understand in say banking, they have HSM, hardware security modules. How does the current state of Bitcoin and Bitcoin hardware wallets compare against say banking HSM? Do you have yeah. a sense of that? It's it's difficult to, uh, to compare hardware wallet to HSM. This is a uh, different things. Um, HSM is more a, a basic block for building a more complex application. While an HSM is already um, a hardware wallet is already uh, an application. This is uh, this is very precise, um, but uh, you, you are talking about HSM uh, in in the in the past months uh, as we use HSM and uh, uh, for the Ledger Vault, for instance, uh, but also uh, for uh, for our Nano uh, S and X in order to to be sure they are genuine. There is there is. Um, uh, mutual authentication with an HSM. So we studied uh, precisely how HSM works, and we we did a lot of reverse engineering in order to understand everything. A lot of fuzzing, and uh, and in this very case, we f we found uh, a few vulnerabilities which are quite critical, and we worked tightly with the vendors uh, to help them uh, to, uh, to to patch the vulnerability. Uh, this process lasts maybe one year. Uh, we, we, we found them uh, last year, I guess. And, uh, and we worked uh, with them in the long process. And, um, and uh, when everything has been patched, I think it was the case uh, in the end of uh, 2018, uh, we agreed with with them uh, to uh, to publish, um, and they decided they want they did not want uh, to be mentioned. So we decided to publish anonymously uh, the the vulnerability we found, and we hope that will uh, increase the knowledge of, um, of HSM study, a security study, and improve the sec the security of the HSM ecosystem. And we we published them uh, at uh, STIC, which is a French security conference, and uh, at Black Hat a few uh, a few days ago. Wow. Okay. Great. Um, I'm also really interested to ask you around. So obviously you work for Ledger, so I appreciate that. But uh, what I'm trying to get at here is the question of what are your thoughts on using specific hardware devices that let's say an outsider, if they see it and they know you're using that device, then they know it's probably got Bitcoin on it compared to this idea of using non-specific hardware. And so one example, you know, if you know Trace Mayer, he talks about this idea of using the Purism laptop and the Glacier protocol. How do you compare those different methods and, you know, what's your thoughts on that? Yeah, uh, I know the the arguments on uh, non-specific hardware, which would be hair gapped and so on. Uh, first of all, it does not solve uh, the physical access problem. Uh, if you use a standard laptop, I mean, the if the attacker has a physical access, you lose your phone. Um, so, also implementing your own wallet with a laptop is not an easy task. I mean, there are a lot of companies uh, on the market which spend a significant time and money and effort uh, to, to do hardware wallet or, or wallet. And as you can see, it's not easy. So uh, if you want to build your own hardware, uh, your own wallet, I would say, uh, you, that you will have some difficulties to, uh, to make it well. Uh, nevertheless, uh, I, I can. I think it's a good idea to implement your own wallet uh, because uh, it will help you to understand Bitcoin and how it works and so on. Uh, I think it's a good idea. But uh, 
I wouldn't recommend a, a non very advanced user to, to do that because there are plenty of mistakes that you can do uh, in the process. Yeah, I see. Uh, and so I guess that also ties into the next question around future directions with hardware wallets. Uh, what What's your thoughts on what they will look like and you know what sort of hardware would they use? It's it's difficult to, to predict the future and uh, at, at Ledger, it's not exactly my scope. Uh, this is more the mission of our uh, CTO, Nicola, Nicola Baca, that uh, you, you probably know. Um, and nevertheless, we, we want to be part of the mass adoption. Uh, this, is, this is part of our mission at Ledger. So according to me, the mass adoption will only be possible if the user experience is as smooth as possible. Um, for instance, we would like to enable uh, payments in Bitcoin uh, with a user experience uh, similar to contactless banking cards. I mean, this is this is the kind of thing we, we would like to do. Uh, the other big challenge is the security, of course, and we'll have to uh, constantly raise the bar for security. Uh, we can't lose this uh, cat and mouse game. Yeah, that makes uh, total sense to me. Uh, in terms of... Oh, sorry. There's one other question I wanted. I was keen to ask about, and this is around uh, verification of change addresses and the other multi-signature devices in that set. So let's start with the change address one. So, uh, my it's my understanding that with some of the ledger devices, potentially in the past, or potentially even now, I'm not sure th there was a there was a difficulty for the user to make sure yes, my device holds the private key for this change address. Uh, can you speak to that? Uh, I think you are referring to a multi-sig setup, right? Yes, I think it's in a, in the case of a multi-signature yeah. setup. So about multi-sig, uh, first of all, I'd like to say that I love uh, cryptography. I'm fond of uh, the schemes. Um, but multi-sig is a wide field. Uh, there are secure MPC with the recent uh, threshold signatures paper and the older, older one like uh, Schnorr signature that we will have in Bitcoin soon, I hope so. Uh, but, but here, uh, I think you're more talking about the script-based uh, multi-sig uh, used in Ethereum or, or, or more, most likely uh, PSBT for Bitcoin. Uh, so. Uh, just a word about security. I heard this trend saying that multi-sig is the ultimate solution of uh, to all of our problems. Uh, in, partic in particular, I heard uh, Michael, uh, with who you, you discussed recently. Uh, well, okay, multi-signature uh, multi uh, schemes need to to be reviewed by scientific community community, and their implementation is also of concern. Uh, this is the, the first thing I would say. I would like to say the main problem uh, is that a tiny mistake that can lead to massive loss and at scale, and this this is a this is a this is a very concerning to me. And when I saw the, some companies uh, who are basing all their security on a brand new MPC uh, scientific article, which has not even been uh, reviewed by uh, the scientific community, I think it's 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 a bit irresponsible. And I don't even talk about uh, implementation issues. Uh, there are already examples of loss in Ethereum and others. Um, but talking more, more uh, precisely about uh, PSBT uh, on hardware wallet setup, which was your, your initial question, yep. if I understood yep. correctly. Um, again, I think multi-signature adds uh, complexity, and complexity is the enemy of security. Uh, so if you really want to use uh, multi-signature using hardware wallet, uh, you have to be aware of what you do and what are the threats. It's not 
the magic thing uh, that Michael was talking about uh, from my perspective. <laughs> so uh, talking about our, our implementation, we are currently working on a full uh, redesign of the Bitcoin app. Uh, and we'd like to include additional uh, validation based on uh, descriptors and pre-validated uh, templates. And I think it will improve the, the UX and, and the security as well. But waiting this, um, I'd like to, to give some recommendation for the advanced user who would like to uh, use a multi-sig setup uh, with PSBT and their, their nano uh, devices. Uh, first of all, the uh, multi-signature address, uh, addresses must be uh, validated uh, using an external channel. Uh, the main problem is that there is no straightforward way to validate the public keys that you're uh, combining are legitimate because uh, they, they are not uh, in your wallet, so it's uh, it's already a problem. So validating the addresses must be done on using an external channel, uh, another channel, basically. We also recommend to uh, validate the change addresses through uh, an external channel. Uh, the change question is not simple because it depends on template, and only validating the addresses on the device is not sufficient. Uh, it can work only if all parties uh, comply with uh, the BIP45 and uh, uh, all the standards, uh, which, which is not uh, uh, sure, uh, basically. I, I want to get into the, all these details too. I don't want to lose our um, people hearing us. But what, what I want to highlight here is that the, the security of PSBT multi-sig scheme is not straightforward. And I won't recommend you uh, to use it if you don't know exactly what you are doing. And in all case, all case I suggest to start using it on testnet and to experiment and uh, understand everything. Uh, I, I, that would be my, my advice about, uh, about multisig and PSBT setup. Great. Yeah, no, thank you for that. Um, I, yeah, I think, uh, yeah, I guess while we've spoken about some of the ways in which hardware wallets can get hacked and so on, do you have any advice for the listeners out there? Let's say they're an individual, they're using maybe a single signature, single hardware wallet scenario. What, what are some tips and things that they should keep in their mind? Uh, yeah, sure. Uh, let me recall the basic security advices uh, because uh, looking at... Looking at our customer support, uh, I, I would say that they, they are not well understood by everyone. Uh, the first one will be uh, to operate your wallet in a secure environment, uh, especially when you are generating your own seed. Um, don't do that uh, on the street. Uh, do, do that uh, at home uh, with, with, in, a, in a quiet place. Take your time and so on. It's very important. Very important. Don't forget to back up your seed. Um, we have too much customers uh, who lost their funds because of this, and and this is a this is a very uh, dumb uh, mistake. And back up your seed securely. Uh, I mean, don't take picture of it. Don't save it online uh, on on your online computer. Don't send it, send it to you by email. It it happens so much uh, time so that there are too much stories of people losing the, their seed just because of this. And the, the last very simple uh, advice is trust only the display of your nano. Don't trust what is uh, written on your computer because your computer is uh, probably uh, malware. Um, you can also use your uh, passphrase for uh, plausible deniability, for instance. But if you do that, don't lose it. 
Uh, that was the the very basics, but I think it's important to uh, recall them. No, I think that's a totally great reminders for my listeners. Uh, how about do you have any advice for let's say people who are operating in a maybe they're more of a family scenario or maybe they're an institution? Do you have any suggestions on security tips for them? Okay, families and uh, institutions institutions are not exactly the same, but uh, for institutional uh, storage, I think the best option uh, on the market so far is the Ledger Vault. I, I will do some uh, advertising, sorry for this. But, but Ledger Vault is a very uh, interesting solution from a technical perspective. This is uh, what interests me, but also um, in, uh, in the case of uh, institutional storage, uh, it allows the organization to uh, manage their funds according to uh, their, their requirements. The Ledger Vault uh, brings a very high level of uh, security. The security of the funds relies on uh, two main pillars. From one side, the hardware security model, uh, which we audited extensively. <laughs> and uh, from the other side, uh, on the personal security device, the, uh, the PSD. Um, it allows the customers to define sets of rules and quorum to uh, for managing uh, the funds. Uh, for instance, they can there is administrators and uh, they can decide that uh, for a specific quorum, um, this quorum can only uh, make a transaction of an amount uh, of uh, uh, X Bitcoin during a specific period. And if they want to do that, uh, they will have to uh, make uh, three signatures out of five using the PSD. But what, what, what is flexible uh, is that they can decide exactly what are their uh, requirements, what, what, what is um, their governance, uh, basically. It's, it's very flexible uh, and uh, while being very secure, uh, since it relies on uh, secure hardware, uh, the PSD and uh, the HSM, but also uh, on cryptography. There is a lot of cryptography between the PSD and the, the hardware security module. And, um, and that's it, basically. And if you are uh, an advanced user and you, you have a lot of coins, you can uh, have a look to a multi-sig setup, but Again, uh, I won't, won't recommend um, simple user. I mean, uh, if you're not an advanced user, I don't recommend uh, you to, uh, to to go to this setup. Got it, I see. Uh, with the Vault, actually, I don't know a huge amount about it. I had a, I had a quick look on the website. Um, so understand then, you were mentioning the PSD devices. It's But that's not... That's not like multi-signature though, right? That like it's more like the they're calling back to the vault, which is being run out of. Is it a web interface for that, or what's that? what is that? So it's more multi-authorization uh, setup that than a multi-sig. Uh, we we don't do a multi-sig on-chain uh, using the PSD. Uh, what we do is a governance layer which allows multi-authorization uh, using the PSD. Each PSD has a secret key and so on, and uh, the HSM uh, layer will uh, verify that we, we uh, indeed have uh, three out of five people validating this transaction. Um, what, what is very interesting in this setup is that you can use the uh, um, multi-authorization uh, disregarding uh, the cryptocurrency you use. You don't have to, uh, to have a, a script or to have a, a Schnorr signature, it will work on uh, Bitcoin exactly the same way, the same way as it will work on Ethereum and Monero and whatever you, whatever cri- cryptocurrency uh, you will have. 
Right, I see. Yeah, so it's not using multi-signature. It's more like the authentication into Ledger's vault, and then the vault is the one that's enforcing the policy in terms of three out of five quorum or whatever the quorum that you set. Right. Exactly. You can see you can see it as a multi-sig setup because what you when you're talking about authentication, uh, there is a signature. Uh, provided by HPSD, uh, but at the end, the, the, this is not on-chain multi-signature. This is the main difference, yes. Yeah, and so those PSDs, are they internet connected or are they sort of like a hardware wallet, but they're just a specific device for the purpose only of this Ledger Vault? They, they are based on the blue Ledger Blue hardware wallet. So uh, this is the same platform, uh, but this is very specialized for uh, Vault application. You cannot uh, install the Bitcoin app, for instance, you just have one app, which is uh, the Ledger Vault app, and uh, and this is a this is a Ledger Blue, basically. Yes. Got it. Okay, great. Well, thanks for that uh, information. Um, I guess lastly, where can the listeners find you, and where can they find Don John Ledger? Yeah, you can follow me on on Twitter. Uh, you have just to search uh, for uh, Charles Guillaume. Uh or you can follow the Dungeon. Our Twitter handle is uh, Dungeon Ledger. And uh, we have also a blog post, a blog, uh, which is uh, ledger-dungeon.github.io. Uh, Fantastic. I'll uh, include the links in the show notes for the listeners. Uh, but uh, that was a really great discussion. Thank you very much for joining me, Charles. Thank you very much. Uh, thanks for having me today. Bye-bye. I hope you found that educational and that you're now a little more equipped in terms of knowledge about Bitcoin hardware wallet security. So think about what steps you need to take to improve your own security and just beware of some of the common mistakes. So make sure you back up your seed. Ensure you do not take digital copies of that seed and be careful what environment you initialize and use the hardware wallet in. And so now you can advise your newbie Bitcoiner friends or better yet, share this episode with your friends so they can learn too. Just a reminder, show notes, episode transcript, and podcast subscription links are on my website, Stefan Levera. Thanks for listening, and I'll see you guys in the Citadels.